Welcome to this week's episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Michelle Hamadash, and today I'm joined by Tessa Lani, author of the Kiki Button Historical Espionage series, April in Paris, 1921, and Autumn Leaves, 1922. Tessa also writes fiction, short fiction, poetry, and reviews. She has a doctorate of creative arts from the University of Western Sydney on silences in Australian war fiction. In 2016, she won the prestigious Josephine Ulrich Prize for Literature. Her work has been published in Griffith Review, Southerly, Cordite and Best Australian Poems 2014, among others. She lives on Bidjigal and Gadigal lands in Sydney. Hi Tessa, thank Hi, you Michelle. so much for uh, joining us to talk about your wonderful book Autumn Leaves. Um, it was thank my you. absolute lockdown favourite um, and uh, yeah so I would love to get started. Uh, hmm. Obviously Autumn Leaves is your second uh, uh, novel in the Kiki Button series and mm. in Paris 1921 was the first. So mm-hmm. I'd just be really interested to hear the story of writing April in Paris 1921, you know, what it was like, um, if you can remember, um, yeah. before you had that sort of book uh, deal publishing and, um, you know, sort of that that sense of, of being an author. Um, yeah, sure. Uh well, actually, I did also already have a sense of myself being an author because I had written a, a novel in my doctorate, which was a doctorate of creative arts that I did at Western Sydney University. Uh, and then I turned that in, I turned my doctorate into a much longer book and I'd got an agent from that. And my agent had shopped it around and shopped it around and shopped it around and it almost got a deal and then it didn't. Uh, and eventually she said, that's everyone. Uh, so I had already started writing April in Paris 1921 by that stage I started writing it when I was pregnant with my first daughter she's now five and a half uh, and I continued writing it through the maternity leave that I took so I partly wrote it I partly wrote so did you want the, the publishing how I got it published or how I wrote it which one yeah. or both yeah look really I think both because it, it's okay. it's really um interesting to hear that you had that uh sort of experience of writing yeah. first, first novel that didn't quite get off the ground and, and yet yeah. you actually came um prepared to do that all again um so <laughs> yeah that that's really good to really good to hear <laughs> yeah yeah well I'd actually already started writing April in Paris 1921 before I had a deal like before I knew that the that the first book um wasn't going to go anywhere in the immediate term so I I mean I'm just always writing something which for me is a great help so that it's you know not everything is writing on the thing that is out in the world it's always well I've got the next project already oh and I've got the next project already so then it feels like then it's a it's a life that it's a career and it's not just one one idea that has to that has to keep me afloat or keep me flying or whatever is the metaphor you want so I started writing April in Paris 1921 when I was pregnant and on maternity leave Uh, partly there are so many reasons that I started writing it partly because I had just finished my PhD which was on war trauma and was very heavy and I needed something a little bit lighter a little bit more fun Uh, not completely away from those ideas but just in a very different space and 
partly I, and so I had this idea of this World War One book trilogy that was going to be, I don't know, tra- about trauma, but also a romance and also a farce and maybe a comedy and some action and adventure, but also very literary and serious. Anyway, it was much too big. I uh, couldn't fit all the ideas into the one book. So I split it in half and one was a serious World War One book and one was a 1920s genre romance thriller action thing. And it was that basically wrote I was writing them both simultaneously um but then once I had the baby I couldn't do the serious war trauma business anymore and Trump was being elected and there was a lot of other things going on in the world and so I went with the the fun the the fun book and that was April in Paris 1921 and it pretty much wrote it it felt like it wrote itself really and but also I you know being pregnant I read a lot of genre I read a lot of crime and I read a lot of romance and I was really angry about the sexism that is like almost foundational to both of these genres. It's so angry and I'd read like a romance book and at the end I'd feel a bit sick. I couldn't read another one. And then I'd read crime and there was so much sexual violence and so much gendered violence and so much of it was like unquestioned or if it was questioned it was in a very superficial way. Like the the structure of the narrative and the way that the language was used and the characterization, it was not ultimately questioned this sexism and I just had a little baby girl and it really made me very very angry and I really wanted something very specific so I'm like I am pregnant I or I have had two hours sleep because I my baby has kept me up all night and I want a book set in interwar Paris a crime book set in interwar Paris with a really great voice that doesn't have too much violence and I couldn't I didn't know where to find it I couldn't find it so I had to write it so then I wrote it mm. You know, look, I, I think from my perspective, you know, one of the, um, you know, one of the really striking elements of Autumn Leaves is Kiki Button. Um, yeah. And, you know, when you were talking about how difficult it is to find, you know, sort of um, a, a fantastic sort of representation of women's sexuality in Mm-mm. genre, um, mm. that for me was what Kiki Button did. Um, mm, thank you. Because, you know, her sexuality was complex. Um, you know, you could feel the way that, um, you know, sort of th- that her her sexuality was a way of connecting with, uh, you know, sort of men who were not just her love interest, but also her gay, one of her gay best friends, mm. um, her, you know, sort of her, her, her Russian prince, where, you know, that, that, I, I mean, she yeah. was, and yet at the same time, there was this incredible, um, you know, sort of uh, fragility to her because she did carry so many traumas of, uh, you know, sort of her experience in the First World War uh, and, you know, sort of the, 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 the repercussions of having nursed, um, you know, sort of in conditions that you have this ability to um, allude to so that the reader has this real sense of, of, you know, just how horrific it was without it becoming something that either overwhelms you but rather becomes part of the complexity of Kiki's character. So Thank I guess you. I'm really interested to hear how Kiki came about. Um, well, my friends have called her my doppelganger. So I guess she's the woman I would like to be if I could be a young woman in 1920s Paris. I, I, as I said, because I had a small baby, I also, it was a, like a fantasy projection. I can't go out and have multiple lovers and drink many cocktails as I've just got married and I'm pregnant. So I, I wrote out the, you know, the fraction of me that still wanted to be that woman. 
Heart or that, you know, when you're the just... The Gaulois and Chitan cigarettes and never... Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. just, it's like, I don't want to live that life. I'm very happy. And I'm, you know, and I'm 40. I don't want to go back to my, to my 20s at all. But there's a little part of me that wishes that I could have been there then doing that. And so then I, I wrote that. I'd read a lot about 1920s Paris. It's like my fantasy holiday destination, especially during my doctorate, which was on war fiction. So I'd read about the 1920s and 30s when I was pretending to research because it's not as heavy as the war, but there's a lot of talk about the first war and then talk about the upcoming second war in those 20 years uh, between the two wars. So I'd, I'd, yeah, I read, I read a lot of the 1920s, 1930s to see how people lived, lived after and before, if that makes sense. So uh, that's how it came about. It's just a period I really love. I just find it so fascinating. And I, th- I think that that's where, you know, sort of it becomes such an immersive experience for the reader, uh, just simply because there is that richness of historic detail. Um, but also you have completely, uh, you know, sort of, um, I guess, milked that period. Uh, I mean, there's there's Matisse, there's an Hemingway, uh, you know, there's Gertrude Stein, you, you, you know, plus. The thing is, they were, they were all there. It's extraordinary. You read about it and Everyone was in Paris in the 20s. Any, everybody who was working in, in the arts and in politics and in war at the time was there. It is outrageous. It's not a, it's not a lie. I didn't make it up that, that um, Theo Romanoff was a prince who drove a taxi. He really did drive a taxi. He had no money after he fled the revolution and he drove a taxi. It's, and his cousin had an affair with Chanel. Like I didn't. I, I didn't make that up. He like his cousin would became a champagne salesman and and had an affair with Chanel and they're related to the British royal family. So that his cousins are going to be king and he's driving a taxi. Then the twenty early twentieth century is madness and I love it. But yeah, so it was all it's all there and that's also part of why I wrote the book. I'd read so many histories, but it felt a bit like I was sort of at the window looking in at a party. And I couldn't, I, I wanted to go in. I wanted to join the party. And I can join the party if I write myself into it as Kiki. So mm, I had a lot of fun. And because I, I think that's what I really responded to was because, you know, I, I think that, I mean, you mentioned the fact that you actually had the PhD where you'd been researching um, sort of war trauma. So there was this very sort of complex and nuanced exploration of trauma. Um, but then there was this incredible depth of historical, um, you know, sort of, facts and um you know sort of information and you know I, I wouldn't have known that um you know Theo was um actually <laughs> you know sort of the, the taxi driving Russian prince um but also you know I am actually just looking at the books in your bookcase um behind yeah because I think you will yeah 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 because I think that uh you know sort of part of what allows you to bring that to the page in a way that actually feels very, um, you know, sort of, well, it's, it's, there's an energy and a lightness. So that it's not this sort of heavy read where you feel like you're trawling through historical pages. Um, Rather, there's that wonderful, you know, sort of maybe that sort of Calvino lightness to it all. And, um, but, you know, like that wall is also uh, sort of a wall of um, um, research, isn't it? And yeah. um because it's the fashions as well um Kiki is an extraordinary dresser um, you know like she's striving yeah. some of those outfits the mustard yellow one really um you know and the Chanel gown, yeah. the, gown the Chanel ball um, oh yeah 
and uh, you know so so it just it just feels that your language around um all of these uh sort of things is 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 so rich um, thank you yeah thank but, you um, so, so in terms of that research, uh, do you feel that are you doing all of this research um, as you're writing? Is it that you know you're sort of carrying this knowledge from PhD and then you know sort of finding um, sort of places where it comes in handy as you write? What would you say the process um, of that research writing um, relationship? It's, it's a little bit of everything. So I think if you're thinking about writing a historical novel. You need to you need to be happy to live there in your imagination in that place whatever it is, uh, and so I love to live in the 1920s. I'd been reading before the first one. I'd been reading about this period for about 10 years ever since I read a book called Among the Bohemians by Virginia Nicholson, and she's Virginia Woolf's grand niece, Vanessa Bell's granddaughter. So she wrote about Bohemian life in London between 1900 and 1939, and she organizes it not according to their work, but according to their life. So they've got she's got a chapter on clothing, on parties, on food, on on money, on cleaning. How do you keep clean when you have, you know, dropped from middle class to peasant level income and you can't afford a maid anymore, but you've never been taught how to do the laundry. Like what what do you do? How do you live? I found it so it came at I found it so inspiring. It came at the way, the beginning of my masters when I was when I was deciding I'm going to make a career of this I'm going to make a life of it and I and maybe I've read it 13 times I met her in a house in Sussex around the corner from Charleston where Vanessa Bell lived uh so from then I started just I, I just started I just went through her backlist what did she read and started reading through them finding what I could in the library and just continuing to read and to read and to read so the first one the first one I wrote without much extra research I did buy this book um, which was Expatriate Paris. It's called A Cultural and Literary Guide to Paris of the 1920s. So this is like Rue de Montparnasse. So this is like you just walk through parts of Paris and he tells you who lived there wow. and when. And so this was this is an invaluable resource. Um, but then other things like my mum just had this one, Paris Between the Wars. She just had it on her shelf so I pinched it and Paris was a woman my cousin bought that for me so that's portraits of the left bank it's like a, a lesbian history of Paris which actually is quite a significant history of Paris uh yeah I dug out see things like like this I already had this picture and I dug out more pictures here and just put them up around to to give me inspiration, I guess, and ideas. Uh, the second one, I didn't know anything about 1922 specifically. So I did sort of research and write at the same time. I did have to do some more specific historical research uh, sort of before slash as I was starting. I, I generally did it at the same time. And I do a quick search like on Wikipedia and through and through a couple of these kind of books to see what was happening. Um, but, yeah, then I would read and research at the same time. Um, obviously the research from the first book helps with the second, et cetera, et cetera, because while some stuff changes between 1921 and 1922, a lot is just the same. It's just knowing things like I wanted to put Hemingway in the first book, but he hadn't arrived in Paris 
in April. He didn't arrive until December 1921. So it's like, okay, you've got to go into the second book. Or like uh, Matisse, I wanted Matisse in the second book. And I knew he was good friends with Gertrude Stein, but turns out they had a falling out in 1905. So I had to kind of rework that meeting so, <laughs> so he could be at Gertrude Stein's salon, but also Gertrude Stein could be like, ugh, ugh, you know, such a, what a patriarchal so-and-so. I'm not interested in him anymore. So I, yeah, I use a lot of internet research, basically. I mean, I had a small baby number two. I wrote, I wrote book two when I had baby number two. Uh, so I did a lot of research on the internet and I know one shouldn't admit to using Wikipedia, but it's a really great first touch point. And especially if it's, especially what, depending what type of research you're doing. So I read a lot of novels um, like The Age of Light by Whitney Shara, which is about Lee Miller's time in Paris in 1929 and 1930 and her affair with Man Ray. And I wouldn't use Wikipedia if I wrote something similar because what Shara was doing was, was rewriting that affair, Lee Miller, Man Ray's affair from Lee Miller's point of view when her story has so often been subordinated and even subsumed into Man Ray's story to the point where her work has his name because she was working as his assistant. So she was rewriting that. So of, uh, so she has a much greater obligation to her historical characters, whereas a lot of mine just come on and say something funny in a party and then walk off. And so Wikipedia is okay just to go, what kind of haircut did they have? All right, okay, I can put that in. Great. But, but also, <laughs> you know, it actually felt that um, <laughs> certain elements of the plot, you know, sort of actually came out of the historical possibilities that presented you you know sort of the research because you know that whole idea mm. of mother as you know sort of having the having sat for Matisse um and you know so so did because I, I obviously you know in a in a longer um novel a, a single sort of plot line it, it's not going to you know it's, it's not enough um you know mm. so, and the richness of it was that, that, that you know, sort of those uh, sort of uh, secondary plots were incredibly, um, you know, sort of fascinating, you know, sort of this idea <laughs> yeah. of a problematic history with your mother um, and then, you know, sort of this discovery of, uh, you know, sort of this women's history. Um, and, and, of course, because, you know, Kiki Button, um, and I think this is the other thing that I really enjoyed, was because, uh, you know, I think as an Australian you get very tired of a particular type of Australian always being represented in literature and, mm. you know, sort of finally I felt, you know, sort of a woman and an Australian um, mm. where it wasn't about being sort of a yobbo or, you know, sort of gauche or, you know, all yeah. of those things that go along with it, but actually this sort of sophisticated, um, you know, sort of incredibly intelligent and brave woman, um, you know, sort of who was really living um, and, of course, was also um, forced in, in a, a very interesting representations of coercion. Um, mm, 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 mm. And, you know, that, that made that spy, um, you know, sort of element uh, you know sort of really quite gripping um thank you so, so I'm actually fascinated to hear how you plotted such a complex sort of spy um storyline and particularly because you use the romantic poets um for <laughs> for clues um you know sort of coming from the mysterious box to Kiki yeah uh well okay the plotting plotting is hard I'm still learning. I, 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 I feel myself to be a novice plotter, especially when I look at something wordy like, like Carré. Like your plotting is superb. Um, 
yeah, so I was just say I'm 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 a novice plotter, but thank you for your your praise. Uh, so in the first book, I had I didn't really know what I was doing. It's a bit of a romance, a bit of a crime novel, a bit of a spy thriller. I had it all kind of jumbled up in there. And then I my first go at doing the second one, I did the same thing and it didn't work. And then I realized I'm not really interested in crime because this like the narrative structure of crime, it always goes back to the status quo. Like the crime, in a crime novel, the crime is resolved and that restores order. And I didn't, and we'd had the bushfires and it was COVID and I was like, I don't, and then it was Black Lives Matter. It's like, I don't want to restore what was before. I want change. And a spy, spy thrillers, spy novels are about affecting change. That it doesn't matter how tiny the actions are. In fact, sometimes it's the tiniest actions that can have phenomenal consequences. And I find that much more inter- like structurally and intellectually much more inspiring. So I dropped the mystery crime element that I had in the first one and kept with the spy stuff. And I pushed that. And I guess, I guess, how did I plot it? So the first thing is I, 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 I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the, the rise of fanatical ideology in Europe between the wars. So when I started writing the first one, we just had Brexit and then Trump was uh, elected and the, it felt like the political landscape and the conversations that had been uh, maybe quietly spoken before were now being shouted and were very loud and front page news. And, and, you know, people were talking about the thirties a lot as soon as like when Trump was having his rallies. And so it felt very prescient. So that's the first thing is I, I'm looking for the, the political, the political event, I guess, to do with fanatical ideology in the 1920s. And obviously there's two big things there, which is one is fascism and one is communism. Uh, so there's a lot, there's a lot to work with. The second is that there needs to, I'm searching for a, like, I think, I think Eliot, T.S. Eliot called it an objective correlative, some way that the, your, but it's some way that Kiki's personal life reflects the political life. This is very difficult to, to sort of, even though we feel very deeply about political things, it's very difficult, I find, to put that in a novel. Whereas if you can create, if I can create that tension and those ideas with something that's much more personal and immediately personal and relatable than that, then that helps. And so the idea of, I guess, are those two things, the kind of sadness and, and kind of missing the boat and the stuff that's happening with her mother and, and the stuff that was happening politically in terms of the complete disintegration of empire within Europe so the Austro-Hungarian empire was gone the German empire was gone the Russian empire was gone and there's huge swathes of Europe that are in uproar and killing each other after the war so after the war has ended it's not like it goes back to normal like this is for a lot of eastern Europe this is when the like the blood keeps flowing so I felt that that kind of mirrored each other I guess but also the, mess, I was, the messiness, because you know, sort of, we we have that sort of clean historical event idea yeah. of where war ends, whereas in yeah. fact, life is not like that. It's 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 messy, and you know, it's that Oscar Wilde yeah. like goes and too long, and too, you know, doesn't yeah. the good people die too soon, and you know, yeah. it's, it's just we've only like yeah. made it art. Also, I was I was not in a very happy place, and um, so I decided to make Kiki really unhappy. <laughs> so, 
I just am like, okay, what can I do? Somebody dies. Not Tom. I don't want it to be Tom. There has to be some hope in life. Okay, I'm gonna gonna kill her mother. That's it. Her mother's dead, and now she has to deal with this grief. She has to and deal with very, this grief. Look, and it was a very uh, sort of powerful thread to play because obviously it has that connection to sort of women's history, mm. um, also the way that you know sort of because effectively she hadn't a, a relationship with her mother, um, and and so you know sort of there, there's that element of something of a, of a you know sort of a, a missingness that can't be filled. You know, like it's the loss that can't be restituted. No, yeah, I think that's really um, you know sort of powerful in fiction, isn't it? Because unfortunately, uh, we can't really sort of enjoy you know sort of super happy <laughs> you know stories. You know, there's an element of suffering and yeah, yeah. Um, you know sort of sadness that I, I guess uh, you know sort of pins us to the page and. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, and it gave Kiki, because I, I guess that is the thing, is that you had quite a, a sort of a cast of characters. Yeah. Uh, and yet your characters were, you know, they had their stories, um, you know, they were sort of complex and uh, yeah. Thank vibrant. you. So what do you, what do you just, have strategies? Yes, I do. But I realised I didn't finish answering the previous question about the plot. So I yeah. talked a lot about the intellectual stuff of the plot. Sorry, because I know this is for your students rather than just a chad. So if they want practical help, I got, had those intellectual things and then I wrote out a very, very detailed plot, which I had to do because I was writing it with a baby. So I had an hour and a half. I'd sit down, look where I was up to on the plot and then just write 1,500 words in between breastfeeds and then I'd run off again. So I, I did that and I tried to make sure that I addressed I addressed things in the right order so everything had every every chapter would have like a political like a plot point if that makes sense but also something emotionally grabbing within it does that make sense yeah yeah so so that was was that a sort of a schematic kind of a a, a sort of a plotting on a4 paper was it you know like what what were your yeah yeah it's like like ten thousand words of plot outline kiki goes here and does this (laughs) wrote out yeah so i spent i tried to just wing it and then like i don't know what i'm doing i don't know where i'm going and i haven't had any sleep um and now my baby's woken up and I've wasted my writing time. So yeah, I had to, I had to just write it out really, really in, in detail. This is literally what she does. And she meets this person and they talk about this. This is the plot point they have to cover. And in the next chapter, so it's like next chapter, she goes here and she meets this person and they cover this idea. So you and I have to make this connection. Yeah. So you kind of wrote a plot outline before you wrote the novel? Is, is all you Yeah, yeah, yeah. As yeah, that's long. So in, in past books I've written it sort of in tandem, like I've written a few chapter outlines and then written a few chapters like that. But this one I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I didn't, I, I didn't have that flexibility. I wrote out the plot, like the whole chapter and went, this is how it's going to end. It's going to end on this moment and so I wrote out the whole yeah the whole thing and some of it some of it I didn't know so who the mother's lover was when I started I'm like haven't figured it out but I just have to figure it out by this stage (laughs) and so I then I figured it out I'm like okay good so I did leave you have to leave some little space for yourself to uh discover to breathe to to think yourself into the point so sometimes the plot point would be she has to find out this clue make it up you know, like do something fun. But um, other, other times it was really like really heavy, like heavy handed almost of what she had to do when, because I had to make sure that 
like all of her friends were introduced, but in a spaced out way, but not too soon. And then the clues were spaced out, but also that it would go between the mother and the politics. Yeah. So does that make sense? It was very, very detailed plot outline. And I guess that means that that also changed what it felt like when you sat down to do the writing as well, because you're essentially writing to a sort of a pretty clear uh, sort of plan, which, you know, still allows you to have, you know, sort of surprising, you know, sort of moments and experiences, but it's very different to just sort of sitting down and going, what's happening this chapter? Um, I don't don't generally do that anymore, sit down and go, what's happening this chapter? Because I'm always writing in moments of time that I've, taken for myself so at the moment I write between 6 and 6 30 and often I have both my daughters in a chair watching educational TEDx YouTube videos made for kids and so I know I've got 25 minutes and if I'm like what's going to happen I've just uh, like I there's no point I'll just read a book or like get breakfast ready or whatever so I I always write like I write really specific chapter outlines and sometimes I yeah, I always write really, really detailed chapter outlines. But sometimes they're just like they don't have any of the dialogue. They don't they don't say so and so has to say this or do this or or looks like this. So all of the details, which for me is the joy, I don't know what they are. It's just like character has to character meets this person. Character has to has to find out this plot point or this is a point where Fox has to come into the story. It's been three chapters and we haven't heard from him, so he has to come in. Yeah, but, yes, it was very, it was very detailed and certainly, and it's because I have, I have bits of time where I can jump in and I can write, but I don't have time to plan in those same moments. So I spend a week or two weeks and I do all the planning and then the plan is done and then that, I mean, I can change the plan at any time. Like, it's not a, it's not like I'm not submitting it to to my line manager who's going up, who has to be you know, for approvals. Like, I just, if it doesn't work, I just go, okay, that's not working. Um, but generally, if I've put the effort in to think about it, then it works. It works better than I, it works better than I think it will work. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it surprises me how well it works. But I, I have to do that, or I waste my time. And I can't, I can't, I can't do that. That's, yeah, look, that's really a generous um, sort of sharing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. So, yes, very detailed, very detailed. So, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking that this perhaps um, sort of feeds into the way that you do manage to bring so many different characters to life um, with such attention to detail because that is what it feels like is that, you know, sort of there's no, you know, sort of flat character, you know, whether it's Fry, whether it's, you know, sort of a, a, a pops in here, you know, they, they all feel very, um, you know, sort of human in the, in the sense that they've, they've, they feel like they walk in with a, with a life and a past and, you know, sort of a Thank you. baggage, you know, sort of thing. So is that just, are you, do you bring your lived experience to your characters in the sense of, uh, you know, sort of types of people you know is it much more of a case of because you do so much sort of planning for the the plot that once it gets to who these characters are your imagination just runs riot what what what's the the sort of the 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 modus operandi for the characters uh yeah it's a bit of everything it's hard to say so I um I see them in my head I hear them 
they, I hear them. It's like uh, transcribing a film sometimes. And when it's not like that, when I can't hear them or see them, then sometimes I'll just write a chapter where it's just character says, hello, here is my plot point. And Kiki says, thank you, plot point. And I'm like, big asterisk, come back to this, you're too tired. Uh, but, yeah, usually I just hear them in my head or see them and see them move. Yeah, no, no, no. Am no, I no, mad? No, no, it's... no, definitely 100% no, 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 no. <laughs> um, so, so it is very much that case that, um, you know, that is the part of your writing process that has a, you know, like a, a bit of a, a magical, mystical moment where these characters just uh, sort of, do, do I mean, I guess when you think about how much reading you do and how much research you do, um, it, it, and, you know, it, it makes sense that, you know, sort of these, these people are, you know, visiting you. <laughs> yeah, well, I have have a very strong imaginative life and I always have and I wanted to be an actress until I was about 21 uh so I read a lot of plays and I've read a lot of you know I, I, I tried to embody a lot of different people when I because I wanted to be an actress and then I realized I, I wasn't really good enough but I'd spent a lot of time pretending to be good enough shall we say and really thinking about it uh so I think maybe that helps and certainly when I when I write, I often read my work aloud, especially if I'm not sure about a scene, I'll read it aloud. Can I hear it? And because, and because if I'm performing it, sometimes the performance doesn't come out on the page. And so then I will change the language so that the, the performance in my voice and my body is also on the page. That is, is make it as close as possible. Um, yes, yes, but also it helps a lot it helps a lot to have a character like Kiki. So other voices sometimes that I've used have just been awful, like the writing is terrible because they, the voice doesn't allow me to go anywhere or do anything, whereas Kiki, Kiki I find so easy to use. I find so easy to write as her. And so the, you say the characters come to life, but they're just how she sees them and how they talk to her. So if... So she sees Hemingway in a particular way and Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas are interacting with her in a very in a very particular way as a particular type of woman that Kiki is. And so that's how and so that I get to I get to create the character from her perspective. And so I don't have to, it gives me a lot of freedom, I guess, to have a lot of fun because I don't have to be historically precise I can just be it can be very broad strokes because it's always from the point of view of a person that has never existed and but I guess it's also interesting to hear the degree to which you know there's a sort of a a connectivity between your characters so you know sort of rather than approaching each character as, as sort of an atom or you yeah. know their own uh it's it's that awareness that actually uh you know sort of a character like Kiki calls a particular type you know it, it calls a, a particular reaction out of people which I, I think is you know sort of very sort of insightful um but also you know it's, it's good writing because it gives you that sense of you know sort of the relationships you know and yeah. the relation, you know characters in relation to other characters rather than you know sort of those atomized beings that just sort of turn up say their bit and go um, yeah it's always that sense of um yeah thank you connections I mean made. I'm very glad that it worked because one of the things that has annoyed me about crime writing in particular is how many stereotypes turn up and say a stereotypical thing and then wander off and they're just a plot device and 
it's annoying and innovating and then it becomes infuriating so I wanted to I wanted to make sure that even that both the famous characters as well as the people you know the waiters and the taxi drivers and the prostitutes and the other people who made Paris so vibrant that whose names are never recorded anywhere um also kind of had a moment of life or as vibrant in their moment as anyone else and it helps for me it helps a lot to do that through the first person because as you said it's always that like that personal interaction as Kiki meets Kiki meets this person and has to talk to them and if she's a person who notices other people then it becomes it becomes easy yeah. yeah, and because in, in in dealing with that particular period in history, you're really sort of grappling with some difficult elements because obviously it was a time of, um, you know, sort of prejudice, uh, racism, classism, um, you know, sort of misogyny, you know, the whole shebang. Um, and I guess, you know, sort of one of it, that really sort of um, ethical dimension to Kiki um, is the fact that she just, you know, sort of is with everyone you know like there's this, and, it, and it's her willingness to not just you know sort of interact but you sort of feel as though she gives a part of herself um mm. to her um sort of encounters which you know sort of does this sort of wonderful thing of uh sort of drawing everyone in whether it's you know sort of the the, the little match girl because we've got a you know, yeah um the little match girl um you know sort of you deal with the um you know sort of the the, the racism of the time where uh you you know, sort of I think it's Maisie who's you know sort of barred from doing x y and z but in in Kiki's you know sort of reliance on her um you know sort of we get both the it's it's we get both the complexity of a time that is racist without having you know sort of say racism um as as part of you know sort of that overarching idea of the the novel which is a different you know like that's a, a <laughs> challenging thing to do um yeah yeah, um, and, and I get, you know, I, I think as well, after so long of being housebound during lockdown, uh, you know, one of the things that was I, I just admired so much was your ability to bring um, Paris to the page, you know, sort of her, uh, you know, sort of her, I can see her a, a apartment, I can, you know, sort of see where she was um, taking her cafe au lait, you know, I, I, or, or creme, I think it was. Um, but so, so it's that combination of, of uh, I guess, the detail of place, but it was also the atmosphere and the feeling of place. Um, yeah. I think the thing that really struck me was the point at which they find themselves in Italy. And, uh, you know, sort of it's just uh, the morning of, uh, you know, sort of a, a march of the fascisti to, to, to Rome. And mm. the, it, you really captured not just the feeling of the march, but, you know, sort of the, the, the lead into that, the way that the sort of that sense of what was about to happen impacted mm. Hotel staff, the, the the way the streets cleared of children, um, you know, so, so there was this wonderful sort of um, build up to this moment, and uh, you know, sort of I can actually see, um, you know, sort of those black clad, you know, the black clad boots. That, that, um, so do you do you have you. tips and for how to sort of produce um, <laughs> how to work your your I guess your story world, your set because it's not just setting, is it? It's it's that whole world that happens. Um, do do you have some tips? Um, <laughs> keep keep reading I mean I so the Black Lives Matter protests were happening while I was writing this and my publishers are American so I when I sent it to my editor she said the same thing that 
she really, um, it really resonated with her, the, the riot, because she just lived through some several months, like a whole summer of riots. And so it felt very real, the fires in the middle of the night and, and a sense of chaos. So one is, I guess, keep reading, keep reading the news, keep, keep looking and keep imagining. And if you can, if you can search out uh, personal stories as opposed to just news reports, that can help a lot. Other places for story setting, it's the same, it's the same advice. Just keep reading and keep reading and keep reading. So I've read a lot on Paris, uh, 1920s Paris. And so after a while, people start saying the same things. And then you know, okay, this was this was true of the time. This is how people felt about it because everyone's saying roughly the same thing. But also as you keep reading, you can go, I like this and I don't like that. And so then you can also move your writing to be more like Hemingway's A Movable Feast and less like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I put down the books I don't like and I don't read them <laughs> to the end. But I've read a lot of historical fiction where it's they show off how much they know. It's like, I don't need an entire chapter about potato planting. Like this is not Moby Dick and you are not Herman Melville. So just don't, just don't give me that detail. We're, we're in a different genre here. So, so yeah, I guess that as well. And you can, and as you keep reading and particularly contrasting, say books set in the time that are contemporary books and books written from the time, uh, you can also pick up the details that will, that will, be like major signifiers of of the period so like I can read a lot of Agatha Christie for example um who was writing in this time uh, or like you've got Simenon on your shelf I can yeah. see so I read a lot of Simenon as well to see this is what this is what they're saying means Paris or means means of the now and then what we think is of the now and then and and sort of put them together so for me things like telephones like how, t- how telephonic communication works is very, like it signifies right now. And another thing that signifies Paris is that the cafe, like the cafe sitting in the table outside and you're smoking and you're drinking coffee. And that's, that's, a, that's a Parisian thing, especially in COVID. I'm like, <laughs> that, that says another time. Um, how else do you do it? else do you do it it's that it's the thing that I said before of choose a place that you don't mind living in in your mind and so once you start to live there in your mind then well I I see it like I see it but I also then like I use my research and then I try and 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 see the place in my mind and if I can't do it then I'll do a little um exercise so I said I have a you know a plot point I go down I've got my plot point I've got to write that and I don't know how to begin I don't know where to start and so I'll just like I'll dress Kiki and then I'll have her go down out the door and lock the door and down the stairs and into the street and where does she go and what does she see and sometimes I can write a thousand words of just and it's just for me to play to to be there and then I'm like here she is here she is okay now the scene begins and then I can write the scene and I'm already there and then and then I cut I cut that nonsense at the beginning, but I need it. I need it for myself to get there. And sometimes then I can read other writers. I'm like, you should have cut that. <laughs> that was for you. <laughs> you know, JK, Robert Galbraith, okay, JK Rowling, that whole five pages of that chapter does not need to be there. You just need that sentence at the end. Yeah. That is the yeah. scene. Um, so, 
yeah, but I would do that for myself. And especially at the beginning, by the end of the novel, I'm there, like I'm in, I'm in the world, you know, but at the beginning when I start writing, I do that, I do that little trick quite a lot. Uh, yeah. Look, I, I think that's such helpful tips to share because, mm. I, you know, sort of the combination, the, the fact that you're writing historical historical fiction and yet you see it as part of the endeavour is actually sort of keeping up to date with what's happening now in the mm. news, um, you know, because mm. I, I think that that's, uh, you know, sort of one of the things that makes uh, autumn leaves feel so living, like it feels Thank very you. relevant um, and, you know, sort of there's that vibrancy um, and, yeah, there, there is there is that sense of something being said um, to the, the, the minute, the right now. Um, and also just that idea of recognising the difference between the writing that you're doing for yourself and the writing that, you know, sort of that willingness to cut um, mm. and to start, and pick up the pen, this is the point where I've actually, you know, sort of, I've become kicky. I'm in Paris. And, and that's what I think it feels like um, is that it is that sort of immersion from the, from the perspective of the, of the reader. Um, Thank so, you. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess just to, to, to sort of uh, finish off, it, it would be wonderful to hear a little bit about what it's, the, the mechanics of it, you know, sort of the nuts and bolts of actually getting yourself published, you know, sort of what happens when you get published. Um, I, you do some wonderful work with um, uh, with Instagram and, and social media, uh, yeah. you know, and so j just a little bit of insight into that side of writing as well. Yeah, sure. So to get published, get an agent. I just can't stress that enough. My friend got his first book published without an agent and then his publisher stuffed him around with his second book and he'd written it and then anyway, it was dreadful and now he's got an agent and the agent the agent does a lot of work on your behalf. Um, if you've got a good one, you, you create a really good relationship with them. Um, so my first book, as I said, didn't get published and it would have got at least 20 rejections. That would have been, firstly, it would have been impossible for me to get my book in front of other people. And then it's so hard to get 20 rejected emails. But she just did all that work. And she'd send me a little spreadsheet saying, these are all the rejections and, the, and, the, and what they said about it. Um, that was hard. But she was really positive. She's like, they've read it to the end. They just don't think they can sell it, but they've read it. That's really great. So that's, that's number one. Agent, get one. Um, and once they've signed you on with your book, they'll do a lot of the work for you to get you in front of a publisher. Um, and it might not be your first book. I hate to say that. It's a, it's a, it's a, I'm finding that it's a career that has no path. It's endless wilderness and you just go forward and find the magical groves in the wilderness every so often. Um, there's a lot of failure. It's mostly failure, this life. I don't mind. I, I mean, my acting, my acting career that never, that never took off, I was deeply, deeply committed to it. And, of course, it was all failure. There wasn't even one bit of success. So this feels like <laughs> way success, more successful than that. Same with, you know, my academic career. Yeah, I only ever managed to be a casual academic despite having a PhD. So this still feels very much more successful than the other hard and risky things that I've done or tried to do shall I say so yeah. so I guess that's also like uh, agents help you with that they're on your team 
and they help you with this, uh, the slowness of the feedback loops and everything happens really very slowly. So I, uh, my first book never got published. I now have to, it's now, it's now got to a point where I need to rewrite it again, uh, but it can't be published in Australia. Um, anyway, that's another, that's another story. So my first book didn't get published. My second book, which is April in Paris, 1921, I wrote that and I gave it to, it's so different from what I'd written before. I gave it to friends and went, is this awful? And they said, no, it's fun. So I gave it to my agent. She loved it, sent it out. I got two book deals within two months. That so was very quick. It was very quick. And because it's genre, they wanted it published quickly. So within a year, I got, I got a contract and less than a year later, uh, I got two contracts and less than a year later, I was published. So obviously with my first one, I had a full manuscript and then they uh, edited it and then they sent it back to me and there was some back and forth with the edits that took quite a long time. I needed to do some rewriting of the ending of the first one. Uh, HarperCollins had quite a lot to say about what they wanted. Um, and then so the edits were finished. I got the contract in July 2017 and the edits were finished in October and then I was published in May, end of May, beginning of June. It was a June publication, June 2018. And then I did some promotion for that. The promotion lasted. The main promotion is, is in the month after you're published because they have a new, a new list every month. Uh, but some, So the main promotion, I was published in June, so it was through June. And into July was the main part of my promotion in Australia. And I was published in July in the States for my first one. So most of my promotion was in July and into August. But then the first one had quite a long tail. It got picked up by libraries. And so I started talking at libraries. And after the HarperCollins finished their publications, then I got onto my agent and said, what about festivals? What about libraries? And so she shot my book around to some festivals and I spoke at the like a, I spoke at Orléans Française one time and I, and I like a Woman's Day thing and at the Art Deco Festival in Leeton in 2019. So that's more than a year after I was published. Um, yeah, so it had kind of a lo long tail that got me no money, but it, it got it out there. It, it meant that it was still alive, I guess. Um, now the second one, the second one I wrote a uh, uh, two chapters in a pitch so I didn't do a full manuscript because um, it's meant to be a series writing a full full manuscript the second time just seemed overkill it was not necessary uh, HarperCollins didn't pick it up um, but Pegasus my uh, American publisher did and when HarperCollins rejected me actually that's what and one of the things that was making me very sad so i there were other things in my personal life that were making me sad and then I got rejected and then it was the bushfires and I that's when I completely redid the novel and went, okay, it's not going to... It was originally September 1921 and Kiki was again fun and happy and then I changed it to October 1922 and made her sad. <laughs> sad, Kiki. Um, and actually that fit the, that fit the, political, the political and emotional place that we were in in covid uh, in 2020 much better um and so so where was I up to yes so they picked it up and my American publisher they like really short deadlines they're like oh can you do this yesterday no I can't, I can't. so my Australian publishers they, they're happy to have quite long 
deadlines. You know, can you do this in two months? Or do you need three? As Americans are like, can you do this in two weeks? Um, so I was constantly with the American publisher begging for more time. Uh, so I got I got the I got the contract from them October 2018, but because I was pregnant. They, they wanted it in March. They wanted it six months later. If I hadn't been pregnant, I would have said yes because I could have written over summer, but I was. I said, there's no way. Uh, so it was It was originally October 2020. No, I got that. Sorry, I got the, I got the contract in October 2019, and originally it was HarperCollins sort of took care of everything because they had world rights, and my U.S. publisher had US rights only. So they were the US publisher was working from HarperCollins's text and just changing a few little things for an American market. Um, so I wasn't quite, and because I had so many readers with HarperCollins, there was no way that anything was going to get past them. I think they just read it because they wanted to, they thought it would be fun to read the book. Like I had children's book editors reading it and giving me feedback. I'm like, is this your job? They're like, no. But I had to justify reading it. So here are my comments. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> so that was nice. That was nice. Whereas um, uh, the second time, there just wasn't as many people reading it, you know. And uh, uh, But I didn't realise when I first got it back, I didn't realise that it would actually, it did have another round of editing with the, with the like the typesetter um line editor person uh so that so it might have it might have I just wasn't I just wasn't sure and I just didn't know so I I did it I did it all again myself um still the feedback that so I'm gonna be I'm gonna be the feedback that they gave me was still excellent uh I think they say they gave me was still good but there was it was just very it was just very quick so I handed it in just before Christmas and they said, can, and they handed it back to me like a week later and said, can we have it back before the 7th of January? <laughs> Some holidays and have literally no babysitting. No, no. So there was a, uh, yeah, who knows? Who knows? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I asked for more time and I said, this is why I need more time. And they said, okay, we just need it back. This is the final day. You have to give it to us or we can't get it typeset to go to the printer on time. So I worked to that deadline. I mean, I'd done that before in my PhD. I had 13 weeks to write my 30,000 word exegesis. So that's what I did. <laughs> I just sat down and I wrote it. I actually don't mind sometimes working in that really hyper-pressurized way because you kind of block out everything else and you just sink into the work. My cousin calls it a, a deep dive. You just, I mean, you're just so nothing else exists you just work and work and work and work and you do your family things and you don't you don't exercise and you eat biscuits and then you just you just do it so yeah because you still have worked in an incredibly um, fast timeline you know to sort of go from a couple of chapters and an outline to you know sort of a, a finished manuscript in a, in a year with you know sort of two small children jobs all of that sort of thing I mean they, they yeah and it's it's interesting that you had um you know sort of the the confidence to well and also perhaps just not being able to do it but to actually say no um in order to get what you needed to, to get it across the line. Um, so, I mean, do you have um, any tips or anything that you would uh, sort of like to offer up? I mean, you've already been incredibly uh, generous uh, with all of your uh, secrets. Just make the time. I mean, you said I had two small children, but, you know, I wrote two books on maternity leave and that said something powerful to me. It's just like you need the time. 
you need the time. And maternity leave, I didn't have to spend any intellectual energy on a job that wasn't writing. So looking after a small baby is physically exhausting, but not intellectually exhausting. So every time I was breastfeeding, I would read, I'd read, you know, this book or this book or, or this book, you know, that's what I was reading. And I was feeding my daughter like, you know, mashed pumpkin or whatever it is that you do, which is lovely, but you don't need much brain. And so I have my phone next to me and I'm writing notes on my phone because I'm like, okay, I figured it out. I figured out that why that's a problem. This needs to happen. I need to rearrange a chapter like this, you know, and then I just, so just whatever it is, wherever you are, sometimes it's impossible and forgive yourself that sometimes it's, it's impossible. And sometimes you can only do 200 words. It's worth it. It's worth it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of From the Lighthouse. Please remember to like us wherever you listen to your podcasts and we hope you'll join us again next time.